let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord God in heaven above, how kind and gracious you have been to us in giving us a redemption that cost us nothing but it cost the Son and God his very life. And he came willingly and freely and became a substitute for the guilty sinners who look to him and trust in him. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. You know the heart of each person present this morning. And unless you work, it's just print on a page. Unless you work, it's just in the ear and out the ear. And so, Lord, we cry out for grace and mercy. You know the hearts of each one of us work in each heart according to the need. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As October 31st, it was 504 years ago that uh, at least the German Reformation, when uh, Martin Luther uh, posted those 95 theses primarily against indulgences, but it was much more. But it goes further back than that. Um, you can trace all the way back to uh, Wycliffe and what was happening in England at the time. And so we had just finished book two of the, of the Psalter. We went through the first 72 Psalms uh, sequentially, and so it's appropriate time to uh, emphasize the solas, and when I, uh, now, if you're looking at your insert and you go, he has 16 points this morning. You're only supposed to do three points in a prome, according to homileticians. But I'm not going to cover all of them this morning. And uh, what I intend to cover this morning is grace in regarding salvation. But sometimes we think great, once we're saved, we leave grace behind. What an error. What an error. The whole life is one of grace and mercy. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, I labored harder than all those apostles. Well, Paul, is that an arrogant statement? No, because what he says, not I, but the grace of God within me. So an understanding of grace is very important. And we talked about the five solas, scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, Christ alone, and then soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And the reformers also had a Latin phrase, quorum deo. In other words, we're to live daily, actively in the presence of God, cultivating a mindset that all that I think, all of my motives are to be for the glory of God. And it starts with Scripture. Starts with Scripture. The Bible is God's self-revelation. Sound, healthy theology is entirely about God's mind as it is found and revealed in Scripture. And so what we want to do is think God's thoughts after Him. And it's about Christ, the living Word of God, no one has ever seen God at any time. Not God in his fullness, John 1.18, but Christ has revealed him. And we have not 
Christ in front of us visibly, but we have the record of Christ in the Word of God. And as you read Scripture and you think upon Scripture and you respond to Scripture, God will work in your heart. He'll work in your heart. Now, Grudem has a, a, a section on doctrine, and he talks about a major doctrine. What are major doctrines? Remember, uh, a doctrine is just teaching. It's teaching of the Word of God. Some people don't like doctrine. Um, I'm going. <laughs> if you don't like doctrine, you don't like teaching, then you don't like the Bible. You... <laughs> This is what God has given to us for our good. So when I talk about a major doctrine, it's a doctrine that has a significant impact on our thinking about other doctrines and have a significant impact about not only how we become right with God, but how we live the Christian life. So I submit to you that every one of these solas are Major doctrines. If you don't think rightly about these, it's going to affect a lot of other doctrines in the Bible. You may not know superlapsarianism and you're going to get to heaven without it, but if you do not understand these solas, my friend, first of all, you'll never see heaven if you don't understand these solas, but secondly, your Christian life is going to be marred by sin if you don't understand these solas. So um, all that to say, that's my not my apology, but I think a necessity here. I was going to do them all in one week, and I looked at my notes, and I go, no, we'll do one per week. And then I looked at the ones for grace, and I go, no, grace is going to take two weeks. So we're going to emphasize saving grace this morning, and then we're going to come back, Lord willing, next week, and we're going to talk about strengthening grace in the Christian life. But I want to start, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 11. Remember the theme of Romans is a righteousness from God. It is a revelation from God. How are you going to be righteous? How are you going to have a right standing from God. Well, Luther struggled with this because he thought he had to merit, attain that righteousness, and through the study of Galatians and Romans and some of the Psalms, he came to understanding, no, this righteousness required and revealed in the gospel is a gift from God, and you don't work to achieve it, you just have empty hands. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, O Lamb of God, I come. Faith is not a work. It is an instrument in which you receive the gift of God. Someone gives me a gift. How do I get it? You just take out and you take it out and you receive it. That's what faith is. And when you believe upon God, then you are immediately justified, declared righteous. Now, when we come down through Romans 9 through 11, the question that Paul is addressing is what about the Jewish people, all the covenants, all the promises that are given to him? Gentiles are being included. So has God thrust aside the Jewish people? Are they no longer 
included. He will talk about there's a partial hardening for now, but Romans chapter 9 introduces that topic, and it does this. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You jump down to chapter 10, verse 1. Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he's talking about the Jewish people, his fellow countrymen, is that they may be saved. I bear them witness. Oh, they have a great zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God as a gift from heaven, and they're trying to establish it themselves. I just looked this past week. There were a couple of uh, uh, shootings there near the Temple Mount, and uh, uh, one of the Hamas opened up and uh, uh, murdered uh, some people there. But you can go to that, that uh, the wall, the Temple Mount, and 24 hours a day, you'll see people out there, uh, Orthodox people praying. You'll see them inserting little prayers in, in the walls. They have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. The knowledge is this righteousness comes from heaven. Paul emphasizes that. Now, in chapter 11, verse 1, he asks the question then, if Gentiles are being included and the Jewish response is not by the entire nation, does that mean that God has cast aside his people? He has no more interest in them. And he addresses that. So first of all, it's the question. I ask then, has God, this is a very strong term, rejected, pushed aside his people? He's talking about Jewish people. And his first answer is, it's one of the strongest ways besides the double negative of expressing something negatively in Greek. He says, absolutely not. God forbid that you should see, think such a thing. And then he begins to answer, and he goes, <laughs> he looks at Paul himself, and he says, take a look at me. What, what runs through my, through my veins? I'm Jewish by nature. As a matter of fact, I have great lineage. I'm an Israelite, descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So has God, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And the word foreknew, notice it's not just foreknowing things. He is foreknowing people. So don't you know what the Scripture said? And that not, he not only points to himself, but more authoritatively, he points to Scripture. Don't you know what the Scripture of Elijah says about Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Remember what happened, Elijah? We, we, we rejoice, 1 Kings 18, um, the great confrontation there on Carmel. And if God is God, you worship him. And if Baal is God, you worship him. So uh, let's have a little contest. Bring all the people in. Here's an altar and uh, all the prophets uh, you, uh, of Baal. And, and you call upon God. And so they're doing it and nothing happens let, let's see who calls uh, call fire down to consume the sacrifice and nothing happens. He's sitting there with a little sanctified sarcasm and he says, maybe he's asleep. 
Maybe he had to take a restroom break. Call a little bit louder. So they cut themselves and are calling out and nothing happens. And so finally Elijah says, okay, constructs the altar, puts the wood to sacrifice on. He says, no, not done yet. Let's start pouring water upon it. And he does that twice. And then he calls out to God, and God sends fire down. Not only consumes the sacrifice, burns up the very rocks of the altar. And then they chase the false prophets down there over uh, off of Carmel down to Wadi Kishon. It's right at the base there, and, and uh, they destroy the prophets. What a great event. And it's been a drought, remember? And so finally tells his servant, look, yes, uh, coming there off the Mediterranean, here comes the rains, and um, Ahab gets in his chariot, and he's going to run over to the summer palace where he's at with Jezebel, and um, God actually gives uh, Elijah a super set of legs, and he bypasses. He gets there first, and what a great victory. And what does Jezebel say? I'm going to have your head, buddy. I'm going to have your head. And so what does he do? After a great victory, don't be surprised if you have great opposition. And so he put his tail between his legs, figuratively, and he took his servant, and he headed all the way down south past Hebron. He tells his servant, stay there. And he goes out there, and he says, Lord, I just want to die. I, I just want to die. I'm no better than my father's. Well, the Lord never told him. Um, that you just do what I tell you to do, and I'll take care of the results. And so the Lord uh, sent an angel, took care of him, gave him some food, some sustenance, and says, I'm not done with you yet. Go over there to, <laughs> to the mountain, and I'm going to have a little display for you. But so here's the thinking that Paul quotes. Lord, They've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to them? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, what Elijah didn't know was he wasn't the only one that was left. Aren't you glad? You look around the planet, I read the voice of the martyrs, they're going through things that so immense persecution that I've never experienced before. But God is establishing his church, his people. So the point is this, Paul says, not only myself, not only scripture, not only remember Elijah, but at the present time, there is a remnant. There's always been a remnant, a remnant of believing people. And how did they become a remnant? They elected themselves? No, they are chosen, elected by grace. Now here's the clarity of the issue, why I chose this particular passage to start with. Because you, you, you read this, and at the time of the Reformation, grace was put a little twist on it 
and mixed in a little bit of works with grace. Look, if you add anything to grace, you know what? It's no longer grace. You try and add your merit to it, you know what it is? It's your merit, but it is not grace. And if you want to merit righteousness, just do what Jesus said. Be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. And we all have sinned, and so we, we can't accomplish that. And so Paul is pointing out salvation, righteousness from heaven, is a gift, and it is by grace. You cannot merit it. Grace, unmerited favor, and works, personal merit, do not go together. They cannot go together. They are incompatible. Now I want to talk about culture and how this is this trying to make the gospel more uh, appealing. Because here's what happens. You go to somebody and you tell them the gospel. Did you really enjoy someone telling you that you can't merit heaven by yourself, that you're a sinner, that you're under condemnation, there's nothing you can do about it, you have to flee from the wrath to come? Do you know what hell is like? Jesus spoke more about that than in the New Testament than any other person. Uh, that's not too appealing to people. So, um, and I'm not against marketing here, but I read, a, I read an article, so I want to read a little bit of it. It's called, You Deserve It, Advertising Campaigns. There are three words in the English language that I'm beginning to loathe. Those words are, you deserve it. How many times have you heard those words? Buy yourself a new outfit. You deserve it. Take a vacation. You deserve it. Even the old McDonald's commercials used it. Remember, you deserve a break today. Um, let me just pull up some. Now, I'm not against any of these companies. I'm not against marketing, but I just want to see, show you how it is appeals are made to us that we're worth it. So, Burger King. What Now, these are little witty sayings that people have thought up. I'm not real good at wit. I turned to somebody like Trevor. He read my dissertation, and he goes, Really, Dr. Klein? <laughs> he goes, you got to say that in English for somebody to understand it. So Burger King, what's their slogan? Have it your way. Have it your way. McDonald's. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Coca-Cola. Open happiness. Don't you want to be happy? Um, how about uh, Pepsi? The choice. I, I, I like Coke. I don't like Pepsi. Some of you like Pepsi. I want to be uh, biased, so uh, Pepsi, the choice of a new generation. Disneyland, you know what Disneyland's motto is? The happiest place on planet Earth. Now, I've been to Disneyland with my children, and they weren't so happy down there when they didn't get everything that they wanted. You know, it was more than her, it was tears. And, um, the next one, I didn't even know L'Oreal has uh, something for men. But uh, they do, so I just found L'Oreal. What's what? What do they say? You, because you're worth it. 
because you're worth it. Uh, UPS, what can Brown do for you? So uh, uh, Fritz, now I'm, I'm not, Fritz worked for him, I work for him, it's a good company. You, you, don't, you don't advertise a product and you go, you know, I got the worst product in the world. I don't want you to buy it. It really stinks, etc. No, there's nothing wrong with advertising and, and marketing as long as you're doing it with integrity. And last but not least, Wally World. What's our motto? Anytime, anywhere. So we come to the gospel, and it's been marketed. About a decade ago, all of us as elders, we picked up a book and uh, read through it. It's called uh, Seeker Sensitive or Sinner Sensitive. It's Willow Creek Seeker Services Evaluating a New Way of Doing Church. And James Boyce was still alive at the time he wrote the foreword, and he put in there, the first two-thirds of the book are eminently fair in presenting the approach. Namely, what happened was this. It went out in a community, took a lot of work, and you interview people. And if they're already going to church, no, I, okay, I'll go knock on the next door. Are you going to church? No. Did you used to go to church? Yes, but I don't go anymore. Okay, if you were going to go to a church, what kind of a church would you go to? You're asking unbelievers to tell you what the church should be like. I love John MacArthur's comment on that. He said, if an unbeliever told me what he wants in the church, I'm probably going to do exactly the opposite because he doesn't have the mind of Christ. And then the last one-third is a devastating critique. Seekers have become a marketplace and the gospel a commodity, the price of which has been continually lowered to meet the demands of the consumer. The tragic loser is the sinner himself who's been misled to believe that salvation can be on his terms rather than on God's terms. Sinners who are drawn to church by advertising that, that portrays the church as worldly can't be said to have had their needs met. Seekers by convenience must become seekers by conviction if their needs are to honestly be met. Now, we give out the gospel. How do you, how do you show that the gospel is attractive? Go to Titus. What are you supposed to do? You are a, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. How do you do that? You make it beautiful by the way you live. So when you tell somebody that God saves guilty sinners and they look at you and you're living an immoral lifestyle, they go, what? why do I need that? I already got an immoral lifestyle. So we show that the gospel is beautiful, but we do not change the message. So there's a way that seems right to a man, but it's the, it, the end is the way of death. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. My heart, the way I think, I come to it, the most deceitful person is me to myself. I need revelation from heaven to help me think correctly. And you don't go out and work and not expect wages. 
We don't, we don't work for free. Bible endorses that the labor is worthy of his wages. I, I appreciated the um, Eagle Scout ceremony yesterday. Their merit badges. Why? Because they had to work hard for them. It had to merit them. So they deserve that. So all of these things come to impact us and we're easily influenced that God owes us something. Well, you want your wages? Here's the wages for sin. It's death. Aren't you glad for the butts in the Bible? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're already under condemnation. Men love darkness rather than light. He came while we're enemies, we're sinners, we're dead in trespasses and sins by nature. We're children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy and grace, made us alive. So what do sinners need? They need to be told that they're lost, that they're perishing. They need to be told that compassionately. You need to demonstrate by your life that you know that truth. But don't adjust the message to make it market-driven. So let's talk about grace. Grace is God's goodness to sinners who deserve only punishment. And it goes hand in glove with mercy. You don't deserve mercy either. I don't deserve mercy either. God's goodness towards sinners who are helplessly lost in misery and distress. God looks down and he sees his creatures and they are lost without him. God's grace describes God as perfectly bestowing favor on those who cannot merit it because they're under this sentence of condemnation. What we just read in Romans 11:6, grace absolutely excludes any basis in merit. None whatsoever. If you go that Jesus is going to get you 98% of the way, but the last 2% you need to work out for yourself. You've lost grace. You've lost grace. When Paul tells the Galatians, you have fallen from grace, he doesn't mean they lost their salvation. They have fallen from grace as a system, as a way in which you're saved and you live the Christian life. Secondly, grace does not exclude sinners based on the depth and extent of personal sins. In other words, you say, well, that person's way too gone, and the grace of God can't reach them. Ask the thief on the cross. Both of them were reviling Jesus. And then right before he entered to eternity, one did say, turn to the other one, he goes, what are we doing here? I mean, we were under just condemnation for what we've done, but not this man. So he turned to Jesus, and what did he say? Remember me, remember me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So we are all as bad off as we can be by nature, connected to Adam. We're dead, we're blind, but we're not all as bad as we can be in our conduct. We don't all demonstrate our depravity to the same degree, but there should be no pride because our condition... And finally, divine sovereign grace does not negate human responsibility. I didn't say human ability. I said human responsibility. 
In other words, if you just preach sovereign grace, you're going to have a lopsided message. And if you just preach human responsibility, then you have a lopsided message. You have to preach both. God is sovereign in his grace and is your responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. And if you refuse to do that, you can't stand before God one day and say, it's your fault for not electing me. No, it's your responsibility to have believed upon the Savior. Now I want to talk about the character of God in terms of, of grace. Go to 1 Peter 5.10 next. Peter is writing to uh, suffering saints. Uh, chapter 1, verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. In other words, he wants grace and peace to be part of their experience. And then he comes down to the end, and he's going to finish on grace. But watch this in verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Well, what's he emphasizing the true grace of God? Is there a false grace of God? Yes, there is. And he is emphasizing that grace, when we apprehend grace, it does not make us inert. We serve. We love God. Look at 4.7. The end of all things is at hand. Be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each one has received a gift, that word for gift is charisma and has the word grace in it, a grace gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's manifold or varied grace. And here's evidence of God's grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So I come down to the end. This is the true grace of God. If you apprehend the grace of God, oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Grace is not, well, if God forgives, let us continue to sin so that more grace may abound. Paul <laughs> uses that same expression, may genitoy. No, good heavens, no. No. Grace should constrain us when properly understood to serve. That's the true grace of God. You don't merit it. You can't merit it. And the grace of God will enable us to love and serve him. Uh, notice it's the God of how much grace? All grace. All grace. You need grace. I need grace to love the unlovely. I need grace to forgive people who have offended me. They need grace to forgive me when I offend them. Why do we do that? 
because God in Christ has forgiven us by grace. Now, jump over to Exodus 33 and look at one of the great revelations of the character of God. And I probably won't even get this one finished when I'm looking at the time. Uh, Exodus 33. They're commanded to leave Sinai. They've been there about a year. And uh, God tells them to leave. And in verse uh, 33, at the end of two, 3, Go to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I won't go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And Moses goes, the Lord isn't going to go with us. And so the people heard that. They mourned. No one put on his ornaments. The Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So what does Moses do? He pleads to the Lord. He says, Lord, if you're not going to go with us, we're not going. We need you with us. Now watch how he makes the appeal. Upon what? Verse 13. Now therefore, if I have found favor, that word favor is the word for grace. It's not merited. It's not deserved. As a matter of fact, these are stiff-necked people. They deserve exactly the opposite. But if I found grace in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find grace in your sight. Verse 16, favor grace. Down verse 17, if I found you found grace in my sight. It's often translated favor, grace, favor, chain, but it doesn't mean favor in in the sense of prid quo pro. You do something for me and I owe you a favor back. This word here is the word for grace. And so Moses says, uh, please show me your glory, your kavod. No, Moses, nobody can see that and live, but here's what I'll do for you. I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. So part of his goodness here is his grace and his mercy and I'm going to proclaim my name. So here is God's revelation of himself. If you want to know what God is like in his character, here's what God is telling us like in his character. And look at the two attributes or perfections. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is called sovereign grace. It's at, it's, it's at coming from God. Now, sometimes that's missed when we say a gracious person. We're not always thinking about grace. We're thinking a person's gracious, he's kind, he's not belligerent, he doesn't spit in my face, you know, all those types of things. The word here, I will be gracious, is the verb form for grace. In other words, I will exhibit demonstrate grace to whom I will demonstrate grace. And I will show mercy, compassion, on whom I will have show compassion. You know what Paul does in Rome, over in Romans? There's an objection to this. And Paul says, doesn't the potter have the right to do what he does with the clay? And he quotes this passage. So, 
God is revealing himself as a God of grace and a God of mercy. And Moses, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand. And here it is, 34, 5, the Lord descends in the cloud, stood with him and proclaiming the name of the Lord. The name stands for all that God is, and the Lord passed before him. The Lord, Yahweh, the covenantal God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And if you read that over in Deuteronomy, it's not that the children are trying to love God. They have learned to hate God as well. So, watch Moses' reaction in verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head to this revelation of the character of God. And what does he do? He worships. He worships. My response to the gracious revelation of the sovereign grace of God is that I should worship. And furthermore, he said, If now I have found favor or grace in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin. In other words, it's not merit. Right here in the Old Testament, I've had uh, sometimes uh, someone will say to me, well, how come grace isn't so much in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament? And I go, there's grace all over the Old Testament. No one has ever been saved apart from grace. Um, I have a little clip here, and uh, this is... Uh, God some, is slow to anger and patient. This is, this is from a Q&A down there at Ligonier. God is slow to anger. <laughs> We're always learning. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then... Why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting. Time out. <laughs> Didn't we just have that question a second ago? We did. Yeah, it's a little, I think a little, we little did. Nuance. That God's punishment for Adam was so severe. This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After that, God had said, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying, Thanatos, that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time, but the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are.
the question is, the question is, why wasn't Grace is saturated starting in Genesis. You don't have to have the term to have the concept there. When what did Adam and Eve do? They rebelled against the Creator. They didn't believe Him. They believed a lie. Now, Bayum, on the day when you do it, that can be, it's used um, elsewhere, that is, uh, can be an idiom meaning when, not necessarily on that very day. If you take it as physical death, you'll read it in Genesis chapter 5. But we know they did die spiritually. They were separated from God. Ends chapter 2. They were naked and they were not ashamed. They had nothing, no skeletons in the closet. And then sin came in. And there's shame and disgrace for the first time. Something has happened about their understanding of God that they have to go out and hide from him. And God does say there are consequences for sin. But what does he do in 321? Know those fig leaves you tried to make for yourself. That self-righteousness is not going to do it. And so God came along and he clothed them. And I take it that's the first case of death in the universe, that here's what it's going to require, and you just see that, the trajectory all the way down to the cross when the Son of God himself takes on human flesh and dies for guilty sinners. And so you can find this whole thing on grace. What, what? Noah found what? He found grace favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because Noah was so special more than anybody else? No. He didn't merit it, but he was God's sovereign choice. You go down to Abraham. Abraham, you come from such a godly background. I'm going to bestow grace to you. No. He came from parents that were idolaters, that were moon worshipers. And so I look around this room. If you are a believer here this morning, you're not here because you were so bright and you figured it out. You had to hear the message. But God had to do a work of grace in your heart to bring the conviction of sin upon you so that you turn from your sin and you embrace the Savior. This is not just intellectual truth between the ears. This is not just saying, well, yes, I believe. You know what? I'm so thankful the Lord spared me, and I did not die in my sin. If you would have asked me growing up, especially in high school, are you a Christian? Well, yeah. What do you believe? I believe Jesus died and buried and rose again. That was it. But it didn't affect my life. I saw no relationship between those truths and true saving faith. You have to cast the trust off of yourself. I'm not competent to run my life. I need a Savior to save me from my sin. You may not understand everything, but you have to understand at least this much, that you are a sinner, you are under the judgment of God, and you cannot save yourself, 
And you must flee to Jesus Christ alone to save you. If that has never taken place in your life, I, ad I, I admonish you, I adjure you, I beg you as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, flee! Flee from the wrath to come. We read a message by Asahel Nettleton during the Great Awakening on, on Wednesday, and he closed it this way. For many, hell will be a truth learned too late. Don't learn it too late. You have an opportunity today. Turn to him and believe upon him. Don't trust your own merit. There's only one merit that is worthy, and it's Jesus Christ, his perfect sinless life, his substitutionary death upon a cross to pay for it, the resurrection, the Father's amen to what Christ has done. Forty days later, he ascended to heaven, and he said, I'm coming back, I'm coming back. We don't know when. Salvation is by grace, through faith, alone, and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Now, Lord willing, next week then I will come back and we'll talk about grace, how we live the Christian life, because in salvation, here's what you bring. You bring your sin, that's it. You don't bring self-effort. But in sanctification, it is not passive. It's still God working in his grace, but you have to expend some effort. You don't just sit here and put your, put your Bible under your head at night and hope you wake up that you got it all. You have to read it. You have to think about it. And when my will erupts against Scripture, I have to cry out, God, have grace and mercy upon me and change my will, jiggle my will or whatever you want to call it, and bring me in conformity to the image of your own dear son. So, Jerry, come and lead us in the solo song one more time, and then we'll close uh, with a great hymn on grace. <laughs>